Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by returning guest Zeke Housefather, who is the Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute. Zeke is a climate scientist who research, whose research focuses on observational temperature records, climate models, and mitigation technologies. He has master's degrees in environmental science from Yale University and Vrije Universiteit in Amsterdam, and a PhD in climate science from the University of California, Berkeley. Um, Zeke, I understand you've also contributed to uh, this most recent IPCC report that we're here to discuss today. Um, for folks who didn't hear our first uh, interview together, um, it was a, a smash hit on Decouple. Go back and check that out for sure for a backgrounder. Uh, but again, today we're going to be talking uh, about this uh, sixth assessment report. Before we get into that, Zeke, um, let's just uh, you know get into something casual. Like you've been busy this week. Just uh, just fill us in on uh, on how you've been doing, how how you've uh, responded to this. I know uh, psychologically, I spend a lot of time focused on solutions, and it's uh, you know. It's a little less intense, but I find weeks like this for me get a little bit intense as I, you know, I have a, a two and a half year old son and I think about what 2100 means for him and, and these kind of abstract numbers. Um, how have you been holding up, my friend? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always a challenge. And part of it is that the, uh, you know, the IPCC process is focused on problems before solutions, right? We have a working group three report that'll be out about a year from now. It is all about the solution side of the equation. It's a lot more positive. Um but yeah, it's been an intense week, uh, both in the lead up to the report, trying to finish a bunch of last minute analysis um, based on earlier drafts. Uh, and then, you know, once it was out, sort of everyone in the world wanting to uh, to talk about it and uh, all the conversations and all the nuanced points, because it's it's a big report. You know, this is a 4,000 page report. There was uh, 260 lead authors, another 550 or so contributing authors, of, of which I was one of them. Um, you know, it covers, you know, almost everything in the sort of physical science, uh, physical climate science space. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> I, I even can't admit to having read the entire report, um, though I've skimmed through most of the chapters um, and, and certainly read the summary for policymakers and technical summary in, in line by line detail. But, uh, but if folks want to get, you know, a bit more background of the report itself, um, I uh, helped Carbon Brief put together a Q&A. Uh, that covers a lot of the major issues. Um, though, ironically, at 22,000 words, the Q&A we wrote is actually longer than the summary for policymakers of the new report. <laughs> Which is, I think, 45 pages. So yeah, um, a lot to wade through. And, you know, I have to admit myself as well, my, my research for this episode has been pretty cursory and a lot of it's been checking out your Twitter feeds, which has also been very informative. Um, so let's let's dive into it a little bit. Um, it seems like the big takeaways that I've gotten is that we have a sort of greater resolution now in terms of probabilities and, and temperature ranges. Um, seems like that's coming into focus a little bit. Um, you know, we now understand. I'm not sure if this is a newsflash, but that you know the, the human impact is you know the certain cause for for climate uh, changes that we're seeing. We were, should be in a natural cooling cycle. What else was there here? It seemed like there's an increased ability to attribute extreme weather events to climate change. Am I, am I missing anything major here before we sort of dive into the details? Um, so those are all big, big ones. There is also a lot more focus in this report around just when the world might pass particular warming levels, like 1.5 or 2 degrees. Uh, They've been the focus of a lot of the sort of international discussions uh, in the Paris Agreement. Um, you know, there have been uh, some revisions to our uh, understanding of historical warming that are important uh, in sort of the remaining carbon budget and all these sort of things. Um, better inclusion of Earth system feedbacks uh, and their uncertainties in some of these estimates. Um, you know, the list can go on and on. There's a, there's a million small things, but those are some of the big ones. Are there any um, like key anachronisms we should get out of the way in terms of the alphabet soup, just so that we don't lose any of our listeners here? Like RCP seems to be important, SSP. Um, just before we drop any of those anachronisms, like anything we should, we should define quickly for people. Yeah. Uh, so a couple major acronyms. Um, so RCP stands for representative concentration pathways, and those were the old sort of, uh, warming scenarios or 
concentration scenarios used to create warming scenarios, to be precise, uh, that were used in the last IPCC report, the one that came out in 2013, the fifth assessment report. Uh, the SSPs are their replacements. So they're, they're sort of new future emission scenarios uh, and associated warming scenarios uh, that were produced in the lead up to this report and were used in all of the new generation of climate models. Um, and those have various numbers behind them. So we talk about like SSP 1, 2.6 or RCP 2.6. The, the 2.6 number uh, reflects the amount of radiative forcing, <laughs> which is watts per meter squared. It's a measure of the amount of heat trapped by greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in the year 2100. So RCP 2.6 means that there's 2.6 watts per meter squared of, of heat being trapped by greenhouse gases. In 2100, RCP 8.5 means there's 8.5 watts per meter squared. And just for, you know, I think that's that's relevant, that 8.5 number, because um, I think a lot of the sort of more doomsday predictions, the David Wallace Well, Inhabitable Earth book, um, have been based upon an assumption or, or I mean, I guess if it, if it bleeds, it leads. Like the, the more extreme uh, pathways certainly get more clicks and are, are more catastrophic. Um, was part of this report saying that, that those extreme extremes are less likely? Yeah, so the report, um, and I guess we can, we can go ahead and dive into the SSPs uh, now because it requires a little bit of explanation. But um, so the report included a new scenario that was not previously used in the last IPCC report. Um, it was called SSP 3 7.0. And in many ways, it's sort of used throughout the report as the replacement for the old 8.5 scenario. Uh, the differences are, are primarily that the um, the 7.0 scenario results in about 4C warming by 2100. The uh, 8.5 scenario is closer to 5 degrees C. Um, and it's also a more realistic pathway, this this new 7.0, in, in terms of what a worst case scenario might look like. And part of that is, is it's associated with a particular socioeconomic storyline. Um, so the SSP is... Uh, more broadly, the shared socioeconomic pathways look at five different possible future worlds, each of which has a different set of uh, population, economic, and technological assumptions. Um, and they cover a wide variety of possible futures. SSP3 is sort of the dark, the dark path, as I like to, to call it. It's a world uh, that's characterized by resurgent nationalism and isolationism. Countries turn increasingly inward, rely on domestic energy resources. There's lots of regional conflicts has the slowest economic growth and the highest population growth of any scenario. The world remains highly poor and unequal. Um, and it's a scenario where potentially a lot of existing climate policies get rolled back. Um, you know, I've, I've taken to informally calling it Trump world. You know, it's a world where countries are actually actively subsidizing the burning of coal as the Trump administration tried to do. Now, this is not a particularly likely world. Um, and in some ways, it's a lot less likely now than it seemed only, you know, a few years ago when populist movements around the world were, were sort of resurgent. Um, but it's not something we can fully rule out. You know, you, we could have a world that is worse than the path we're on today. Um, and so it's useful to explore what that world might look like. I, I do think it's, it's interesting because in terms of like the, the kind of multifactorial impacts of climate change, we talked about that on our, our last uh, episode together. But you know, we, we talk about a number um, and it's it's very kind of dry and um, sterile a little bit in terms of, you know, we'll have two degrees, three degrees, four degrees of warming. But, you know, all of the impacts, sea level rise, uh, droughts, uh, crop impacts, et cetera. But when you start thinking about the kind of geopolitical implications and once we hit two degrees, three degrees, the added stressors, you know, what that might do in terms of our politics at the moment. It's great that sort of Trumpism has been rolled back. But. I think there's a big risk of a, of a resurgence of those kind of politics, especially, you know, as societies get squeezed, as there's maybe some resource scarcity or food shocks or things like that. It's, I, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope we're not heading down that route. Yeah. A, a way I like to think about it. And I actually had a great conversation about this with uh, David Wallace Wells, who, who, to be honest, in his heart of hearts is a bit of an eco-modernist himself. Um, you know, where I, I don't really like the framing of climate change as by itself an existential risk. You know, I think that humans have live in the coldest places on Earth and the hottest places on Earth today. You know, we live in the Arctic, we live in the Sahara. You know, the, the human species will survive whatever we do to our climate. It might not thrive and it might even be diminished significantly in the worst cases, but it's not going to cause human extinction. Um, but I think where climate, what climate change is in many ways is an existential risk multiplier. Mm. Um, in a world with you know, weak institutions with instability, with conflict, with poverty and high inequality, 
climate change can push or potentially push countries over the brink that are already weakened uh, in a way that is not necessarily the case in a world that is more prosperous or more equal. And so in many ways, you know, the underlying socioeconomics matter as much to the impacts we're going to get from climate change, at least on human systems, as the amount of climate change we get itself. And, and this is something that these new SSPs actually are really well designed to show. Um, because we have these five different socioeconomic futures, we can actually very explicitly look at what happens at a particular level of climate impact across different socioeconomic outcomes. So for example, we could look at what does a 3C warming world, which is sort of where we're on track with current policies, and we can get into why later, um, what does that look like in the sort of Trumpian dystopia versus a techno-utopia? Um, where everyone is rich and prosperous and high tech, you know, uh, an SSP one world or an SSP five world. How does that compare to this SSP three dark future? Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that you know the impacts of three degrees warming are a lot worse in a world that is poor and unequal and doesn't have access to adaptive capacity than a world that is rich and prosperous and does. And so by being able to separate out sort of the adaptation or adaptation, I should say, um, axis from the climate outcome axis. You know, we get to do a lot more interesting comparisons. Uh, So there's a paper a while back that found that, you know, the sort of default outcome in an SSP3 world with no climate policy, this sort of 4C warming, uh, is actually a lot more damaging than the default outcome in an SSP5 world, the sort of RCP 8.5, SSP5 8.5 outcome uh, of five degrees warming. And that's because, you know, four degrees warming in a poor and unequal world is a lot more damaging than five degrees warming in a, a rich and equal world. Uh, and that was a really interesting finding. Um, and obviously, those are both fairly extreme cases. Um, and I think in, in some ways, it's more interesting to look at, you know, say, 3C outcomes in, in both those different types of worlds. But, um, and, you know, I should emphasize in all this that adaptive capacity is, you know, strong for human systems, particularly prosperous ones, um, but not necessarily for natural systems. And so the natural world is is pretty devastated in <laughs> 3C scenarios, no matter what happens to, you know, our human adaptive capacity. I was very struck by, I think, uh, Ted Nordhaus's uh, Mad Max analogy and basically saying, like, when we, when we imagine climate catastrophe, we, we think about a Mad Max uh, aesthetic or world. Um, but that's, in fact, you know, when there is a natural disaster in a country that is completely underdeveloped and poor, it is Mad Max. That's what it, that's what it actually looks like. So that was, that was an interesting reflection. Um, you know, it does, it does remind me there's a, a chapter in uh, James Lovelock book, uh, Roadmap, bumpy road to the future. I think that's what it was called. Um, and he talks about um, you know this this adaptation frame, um, and this, I guess it's kind of this like dy- dystopian future where I mean, and we're sort of seeing it emerging in certain places like the Gulf states with their sort of like techno cryosphere, air conditioned buildings, um, you know, <clears throat> and some elements of kind of eco modernism which start talking about you know agriculture intensification, but, you know, producing food and vertical farms, or you know, maybe that becomes a real necessity as we have less and less cropland available, or there's more drought, um, or, you know, glaciers melting and, and having real, real, real water stresses or mega droughts and, and needing to sort of engineer our way out of this with, you know, desalination plants. And to some degree, all these things are going to be necessary, but the degree to which we kind of um, it's not the kind of decouple uh, analogy that I like so much, but the, the way in which you have to kind of decouple from our, our natural ecosystem support services and sort of engineer our own is interesting. But also to me, it's kind of like you're, you're kind of sailing this boat into the future and every you know, ton of CO2 emit is, is an anchor that you're throwing behind us and that our adapt- adaptive capacities are getting limited. Like I, I think I heard a quote about... Um, the impact of Hurricane Maria on Puerto Rico's infrastructure was essentially setting it back 20 years. And I think that's that's really where I start to worry in terms of climate change is that it's going to really slow down our ability to, to adapt. We'll spend so much time sort of cleaning up the mess that we're going to have a hard time thriving and progressing into the future. Yeah, and, and there certainly is, you know, even a world where we have high adaptive capacity is one. A high warming world where we have high adaptive capacity is not a world we want, right? You know, mm-hmm. There's definitely a vision of a uh, human humanity that adapts but does not thrive in a high warming future amid you know the ruin of natural ecosystems, um, and I don't think that's what any of us want to, our legacy to be. Um, but I think what I also really worry about, and this sort of goes back to the SSP three storyline, is sort of a world of lifeboat ethics, right? Um, yeah. Nils Gilman has a, a good piece uh, from I think two years back now in the Breakthrough Journal called Avocado Politics, yeah. um, sort of looking at how you know, a 
far right that takes climate seriously might sort of adopt a very different and very not progressive view uh, that, you know, we need to save ourselves, right? We need to, you know, keep close our borders, make sure that, you know, none of these poor people who are suffering can, can come here and sort of protect ourselves from the ravages of climate change. It's, it's every country for themselves uh, in, a, in a high warming future. And, and, you know, that's, that's not a path we want to head down necessarily. Um, so, so there's definitely interesting things there. Yeah, we actually we had Nils on to, to talk about that uh, exact topic a little while ago. So listeners, uh, feel free to check that out. Let's let's return to the report um, a little bit more. Um, you know, I think so much of the kind of new climate uh, skepticism comes out of, you know, well, you know, the science is unsettled. Um, it's, it's hard to know how much to attribute natural disasters to climate change, you know, how much of things actually changed so far. So that seemed to be one of the other elements here is that there's a real certainty now that, that human impacts are the key driver of warming and also um, that we have an increased ability to attribute extreme weather events to climate change, or at least their frequency. Can you break that down for us a little bit more? Yeah. So one of the biggest things to come out of this new report uh, was a narrowing of the range of what we call climate sensitivity. Um, so as a bit of background, back in 1979, in the sort of very early days of climate science, uh, there was a big report uh, led by uh, Jules Charney um, that was actually commissioned by the Carter administration. Uh, and it gave the first estimate of uh, what's called equilibrium climate sensitivity. Um, equilibrium climate sensitivity is essentially a measure of if you double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is roughly where we're headed under current policies today. Um, you know, without additional mitigation, um, how much warming do you get at equilibrium? Um, at equilibrium being like in a few centuries when the system sort of fully bakes in the, the committed warming at that particular CO2 level. Um, and that range was given back in 1979 as somewhere between 1.5C and 4.5C warming per doubling of CO2 with the best estimate of around three. Uh, flash forward to 2013 in the last IPCC report, they said that climate sensitivity is likely somewhere between 1.5 and 4.5 C with a test estimate of three. So that range was effectively unchanged, you know, at least in, in terms of what was given uh, in a period of 30 years. Um, but this report made a big change to that. Um, they said, we now think that the likely range of climate sensitivity, and again, likely here in the IPCC's uncertainty parlance means, you know, a, a 66% chance or two-thirds chance of being somewhere in that range. Uh, we think the likely range is now 2.5C to 4C. Um, that's a with a, still a best estimate of three. And, and that's a really big reduction. That's a 50% reduction, in fact, of the likely range of climate sensitivity between the 2013 report and this report. Mm -hmm. Similarly, they also reduced the very likely range, which is sort of a, a 90th percentile range from one degree to six degrees per doubling of CO2 in the last report to two degrees to five degrees per doubling of CO2 in this report. Um, and that has two big implications. Uh, the first is that we're a lot less likely to get lucky and have climate change turn out to not be a big deal. Um, there's sort of this lukewarmer argument that, well, you know, climate sensitivity might be in the low end. We might not really end up with particularly big impacts because we might only get, you know, two degrees instead of three degrees of warming this century. Um, on the pathway we're on today. And those sort of outcomes seem a lot less likely now than they did before. Um, at the same time, the high end has been lowered, which means that we're a lot less likely to get super unlucky and end up at like, you know, four or five degrees when we think we're going to have three degrees warming. And that's really good news, um, in part because a lot of the economic damages of climate change are centered in these tail risks, these low probability, high impact outcomes. Um, and so being able to, to narrow those tails um, can really, you know, reduce the overall expected damages associated with climate change. And so that's good news. Um, it doesn't mean we can fully rule that out, right? You know, uh, there still is a up to 10% chance of climate sensitivity above 5C per doubling of CO2. Um, and so these changes to equilibrium climate sensitivity also percolate down to changes in our projected range of future warming by the end of the century. So in the last IPCC report, they gave ranges of projected warming um, for each of the different emission scenarios. Um, but those ranges were deemed to be likely ranges. Again, you know, there's a roughly one in three chance that it's either going to be somewhere below or somewhere above the range of warming that they gave. Um, this report actually ends up having pretty similar future warming ranges to the last report, the 2013 report. 
Um, but instead of being likely ranges, they're now very likely ranges. So there's only a one in 10 chance that it's going to be outside of that. Um, there's also an, an interesting story. I don't know if you want to go into it right now about how the new report dealt with sort of some of the climate models running hot and, and that whole issue. Um, let's, let's get there in a second. I just, I just wanted to make sure I've got the climate sensitivity thing down. So, um, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, of medical research and looking at like in vitro versus in vivo drug trials that there's just, you know, in an organism, there's so many more variables involved, whereas you can, you know, really narrow things down to a few variables inside of a glass beaker, essentially. And so am I getting that right in terms of that's why it's taken a while to sort of get a, a better sense of, of climate sensitivity? Um, yeah, it's also just new approaches using a confluence of independent lines of evidence, you know, okay. uh, and, and I should emphasize our best estimate of climate sensitivity is still 3C per doubling CO2. That hasn't changed. It's just the uncertainty around that has narrowed substantially. This is looking at doubling rather than a date, right? Like so much of the, uh, the projections are around what's going to happen in 2100. Um, but is this inferring that, I mean, so uh, pre-industrial levels are like 280. Um, so we get to uh, what, 560? 560 yep. um and then and then we're going to hit that temperature range and if we had further increases it's it could double again if we got up to 1120 um yeah so so these are equilibrium climate sensitivity values but they are strongly related as you can imagine to the 2100 warming ranges that are given in the report and so the, the changes in sensitivity do end up narrowing the the warming ranges as well and, and that's what i was sort of talking about about the the likely versus very likely ranges being given in the old report versus the new one for 2100 warming outcomes. Um, but in terms of why these climate sensitivity range was narrowed, um, you know, it really was this big effort on the part of the community to try to synthesize different estimates from different sources. So there's a whole host of researchers uh, studying what's called paleoclimatology or the, or the climate of the Earth's distant past. And that can be used to constrain sensitivity, right? We know, we know how CO2 and other greenhouse gases changed during the last ice age, during the last interglacial, during the Eemian, during the um, you know, Paleo-Eocene thermal maximum, during all these different past periods of the Earth's history through climate proxies. And we can sort of use that to infer what the relationship between greenhouse gases and temperatures might be and what the bounds of that are. Similarly, we have observational evidence. We know how the world actually warmed over the last 200 years in terms of you know, surface temperatures for the last, you know, 70 or 80 years in terms of ocean heat content, um, that can be used as its own sort of line of evidence to try to constrain our estimates of climate sensitivity. Uh, and then we have better understanding of various physical processes like clouds uh, and other dynamics that themselves uh, can constrain climate sensitivity. And so the idea is if we can take multiple independent or mostly independent lines of evidence from different types of studies and combine them, the joint sort of distribution of each of those will be narrower than the distribution of any individual line of evidence. Um, and it's really that insight that is the primary thing that allows us to, to narrow the, the range of sensitivity that's in this report. And from what I understand, um, another element of the report um, that increases our confidence in our abilities to model climate is that when we retrospectively apply our climate models, we're finding that they're quite accurate. Is that, is that correct? Well, yes, um, that doesn't by itself narrow the range of sensitivity, but it does give us confidence that, you know, models broadly are working. So, so this is actually the part of the report I directly contributed to. Um, you know, I published a study last year uh, that found that essentially took all of the climate models that have been built since 1970. Uh, 1970 was the first time there was a climate model published that actually said, we think this is going to happen by this date. We think the world is going to warm 0.6 degrees centigrade by the year 2000 relative to 1970. Um, so that was the first. And then there was, you know, 17 other ones we found up through the 2000s, um, after which it becomes a little bit harder to sort of evaluate the, the future performance of these models just because the time period is so short. Um, but so we took all these 17 models between 1970 and the early 2000s. And we said, okay, what did these models say would happen in the years after they were published? So obviously they, they can't know the future, right? So it's, it's a out of sample projection by the model um, and what actually happened in the real world. Uh, and it turns out that the models did really well at, at projecting what warming would actually happen in the real world. You know, 11 out of the 17 models we looked at were essentially spot on. They were statistically indistinguishable from, from observed rates of warming. Um, and the other ones were not that far off. You know, some predicted 50% more warming, some predicted 50% less warming. Um, you know, I think of the six that were off, four were on the high side and two were on the low side. Um, 
of observations. Uh, and part of that is not necessarily due to the fact that the models got the physics wrong. Um, because if you're trying to model the future climate, you're really dealing with two separate questions. The first is, how does the climate system work? And that's a question of physics. You can get a better model over time by improving the physical representation of the climate. But the second question is, what will people do? How yeah. much will we emit? And that's not a question of physics. That's a question of human behavior, of economics, of politics, of demographics, of socioeconomics. And so, you know, you could have the best climate model in the world in the 1970s. Not that we did, but, you know, hypothetically. And it still could give you a, a bunk projection if you assume that people admit, you know, 50% more greenhouse gases right. over the next 50 years than they actually did. Um, and so we also did a test where instead of looking at how well the models performed in terms of predicting the warming that actually occurred, we looked at what models said should be the relationship between warming and CO2, uh, really all radiative forces, forcings, but effectively CO2. You know, what, what does the model think should happen, you know, unit of warming per unit of CO2? And then what happened in the real world in terms of how much warming we've experienced per how much CO2 we've actually right. emitted or, or how much CO2 has actually gone up in the atmosphere? Um, and the nice thing about that metric is that it sort of normalizes the fact that you can get the amount of CO2 wrong, but that fundamental relationship is still going to be mostly right. Um, and when we did it that way, we found that 14 out of the 17 models uh, agreed with observations. Um, so climate models, you know, have been pretty accurate in the past, um, which is particularly impressive when you go back to the 1970s, because back in the 1970s, we didn't really have a good sense of what global temperatures were doing. Like we hadn't gone around the world and digitized all the old logbooks from ships um, there was no estimate of ocean temperatures at all, which is th uh, two-thirds of the planet. And almost all the land temperature observations that scientists had collected at the time were from the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and so scientists in the early 70s actually thought the world was slightly cooling, um, right. at least had been for a, a couple decades. Uh, and so you have these papers essentially saying, we think this cooling trend is going to reverse itself and the world will warm substantially in the next 30 years, which is a pretty bold claim to make. Like, it's one thing to be like, the world has been warming at two-tenths of a degree per decade, and we think it's going to keep warming at two-tenths of a degree per decade. That's an easy prediction, and that would have been a, a roughly right prediction. Uh, but to be say that the world is cooling and it's going to change course and, and warm is a much more bold one. Um, and so it's particularly impressive that those models ended up getting things right. Yeah. So, you know, again, um, I think in terms of one of the challenges of science communication around climate change is, you know, these degrees of warming, this uh, global average temperature rise. Um, and I mean, if you just add one degree onto all of the temperatures that you experienced throughout your life, uh, you know, this year, or maybe when you're a bit younger, it doesn't sound all that concerning. Um, obviously, you know, in Western Canada, for instance, we're seeing rates of, of temperature rise that are three times that of this global average temperature. But in, in terms of focusing on more concrete impacts, um, I was seeing um, a, a, an article on your uh, on your Twitter page that was bringing, I think, the resolution of sea level rise into a little more focus? Because when we look at the actual impacts, I think that's when we start to have a, a better understanding as everyday human beings, what the impacts are likely to be rather than just a, a degree of, of centigrade. Um, so tell me a little bit more about what, what we know about sea level rise, how much we've had so far, what the projections are. Are those ranges more um, understandable and sea level rise is going to stop at 2100 or...? <laughs> <laughs> So, so to back up a little bit, you know, you, you raise a really great point that no one lives in the global average, right? <laughs> the, in fact, the global average is oceans because the world is mostly oceans. Um, and so when we talk about these global average temperature increases, um, they're not very meaningful to people. Like, um, but what you should keep in mind is one degree of global average temperature increase is 1.5 degrees over land on average. And land is obviously where we all live because land is warming 50% faster than the oceans. And it's three degrees centigrade of warming over the high latitude regions like the Arctic, which are running much faster than the world as a whole. Wow. Um, and so one thing that always grounds me in terms of the magnitude of these changes is the last ice age, which I think everyone would agree was a very different planet than we have today, was only about 5C cooler in terms of global average temperature than the Holocene, than the, te the temperature of the planet today. Um, and so if 5C is the difference between the middle of the last ice age and today, and though that's the magnitude of climate change that, you know, on the very high end, uh, we could potentially see this century. You know, it's, it's unlikely, thankfully, now that we're not going to burn all our coal, but it's, it's, you know, certainly within the realm of possibility of things that could happen. Uh, we had, we had like a two, two kilometer thick ice sheet, like from where I'm broadcasting to you from. <laughs> maybe, exactly. Maybe it was even um, thicker. Right. You know, so, so there are really big changes. You know, it, it would be a different planet if we warmed, you know, four or five C this century. Um, 
But and, and we'd probably commit ourselves to more warming after that because you'd have you know very large losses of permafrost and things like that. But in in terms of sea level rise, you know, sea level rise has long been a, a challenging thing to effectively model in part because you know it, it is really complicated. We don't have we have a lot better measurements now than we had a decade ago of what's happening with ice sheets and, and all the dynamical processes involved there. But we certainly don't have a perfect understanding. Um, we know that the uh, ice loss from Greenland and the West Antarctic is, is speeding up substantially. You know, it's now contributing more than half of the sea level rise we're experiencing versus, you know, a quarter of that a decade ago. Um, you know, previously it was mostly thermal expansion of water that was driving sea level rise. Now it's mostly loss from ice sheets. Um, but exactly how those ice sheets will change in the future is still an area of, of huge scientific debate. And so, you know, the IPCC has a set of fairly I'd even say conservative estimates around sea level rise changes in sort of their central scenario. Uh, and sort of what they say is that in a world that's in line with uh, current policies, um, you know, sort of where we're headed right now, you know, we probably expect somewhere around uh, two feet or so of sea level rise by 2100, um, which, you know, is a decent amount. Uh, the world has already experienced about three quarters of a foot of sea level rise since uh, the 1800s. Um, but that will continue accelerating after 2100, even if temperatures stabilize, um, because you know there's big lags in ice sheets. They, they take, absorb an enormous amount of energy to melt, uh, and you know that they sort of unfreeze slowly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so ultimately, if you look by 2300, you know, in a current policy scenario, we'll probably end up having anywhere between two to five meters of sea level rise. Um, and even in a world where we cut global warming down to, uh, you know, Paris Agreement targets of well below two degrees, we'll probably still have somewhere between half a meter and three meters of sea level rise by 2300. What I understand, like from the paleoclimate models, this isn't necessarily something that's just going to occur in a, in a nice steady rate, but there may be big jumps to it. We might see big rises over a decade or slower, slower rises over other decades. It's, it's, I, I think like when we imagine these things, it's, we, you know, at least as a, as a non-climate scientist, we tend to think of them as very basic, simple mathematic functions, but there could be some interesting waves and fluctuations in there. You certainly could. I mean, it's, it's hard to get good paleoclimate sea level rise estimates on the time resolution of the decade. You know, we're mostly talking century scale estimates just in terms of, you know, how precise we can get in terms of, of dating things. Um, so it's really hard to know if, if there are huge shifts in the course of a decade. Uh, but certainly, you know, even the rate of, of sea level rise we're having right now on a century scale is, is well projected to be quite fast. Um, and there's also, you know, still some big unknown processes. There's a, a huge debate happening in the uh, sea level rise and, and more broadly the ice sheet modeling community uh, around what's called uh, MICI, uh, another acronym to define. MICI um, refers to marine ice cliff instability. And so there's sort of two different schools of thought uh, on sea level rise. There's one that says, you know, okay, we're going to have thermal expansion. We're going to have top-down melting of ice sheets. We're also going to have some, you know, additional flow speeds through like lubrication of the base of ice sheets. Um, but those are the main processes that are involved. Uh, and those are what give you those ranges that I was talking about earlier. Um, there's another group of researchers who say, well, wait a minute, you know, there are potentially other things that work right here as well, particularly this idea that as um, glaciers calve into the oceans and, and fl are flowing faster, you know, the height of the ice that's falling into the ocean increases as the glacier, you know, um, flows more into the ocean more. Uh, and so you get these higher and higher cliffs that are left over as the glacier falls into the ocean. Um, and those cliffs become increasingly unstable the higher they are. And so there's this idea that that process could be sort of self-reinforcing that as the glaciers fall into the ocean, the higher and higher ice cliffs that are left behind are going to fall faster and faster. And if you try to model that, you can end up with, you know, potentially up to twice the rate of sea level rise you would have without that mechanism. Now, the other side would say, well, wait a minute, you know, we don't really have a great physical understanding of that process. You know, it might sound, you know, on its face simple, but it, in reality, it's, it's a lot more complicated. And our paleoclimate estimates don't necessarily support, you know, mechanisms that are quite that fast. Um, and then the other side says, well, you know, we don't necessarily have the best paleoclimate records and there's still a big uncertainties here. And so it's sort of a, a big debate going back and forth. Um, the IPCC sort of tried to 
wade into the middle ground of that by using sort of the the community consensus estimates without marine ice cliff instability mechanisms as their base estimates, and then sort of showing a, you know, shaded range of possibilities if you account for marine ice cliff instability uh, models. Um, but it is, it's a big unknown. Um, anyway, I think the point is, regardless, we're going to be committing ourselves to multiple meters of sea level rise in the future. Um, if it's, you know, tens of meters, um, eventually depends a lot on, on some of these unknown mechanisms. And, and of course, ultimately on, on how much warming we have. Because um, again, you know, a world that is at 4C warming is going to commit us to a lot more sea level rise than a warm world that is at 2C warming. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll, we'll move into talking a little bit more about um, some of the uh, arguments of the lukewarmness, but particularly with sea level rise, um, you know, certainly if you have more resources, your wealth, your country, there will be some increased ability to adapt to, to sea level rises, but sea level rises of these magnitudes, particularly that just don't stop, that, that keep going on where you need to raise your dikes, you know, year after year, um, you know, and, and with the, uh, the distribution of human populations along shorelines, like what's your... What's your take in the face of that kind of lukewarmist argument that, hey, if our societies are rich enough, we can be resilient to this. It's no big deal. I mean, I, I think there's some truth that if we're rich enough, we'll be resilient. I think it also will cost an enormous amount of money. I mean, seawalls are not cheap and adaptation more broadly is not cheap. Um, you know, it, it comes with a cost. It, it also comes to the loss of a lot of our beaches, which we value. Um, but also, you know, what the impacts of sea level rise are less like the ocean is increasing by an inch every year and slowly inundating buildings. It's that we have storm surges today that are, you know, five feet of storm surge. If you add three feet of sea level rise on top of that, it becomes much more disastrous. It reaches much further inland. Um, and the problem is even if you build a seawall uh, that's higher and higher, if you end up having that freak hurricane that gives a storm surge that tops your seawall, you're going to have an enormous amount of inland flooding in a world with higher sea level rise because you're not building up the entire surface of the area behind that seawall to match, right? You know, seawalls are imperfect defenses, uh, particularly in areas that are subject to tropical cyclones. Um, and even places that should be super rich and have good defenses like New York City, you know, got a big wake up call with Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy, I should say, because it wasn't technically a hurricane when it in New York, but Superstorm Sandy, um, where they did have huge impacts from storm surges, um, even in, you know, the world of today's sea levels. So Zeke, for you, like, what are your, um, like beyond the numbers, beyond one, two, three, four, five degrees, um, in terms of those real world impacts, like what are your, give us your top five, uh, climate impacts that you're concerned about. We talked about sea level rise. I'm imagining that's one of them, but can you hit us with a couple more just to flesh that out? Yeah. So sea level rise is one, uh, extreme heat events are another, you know, as we saw in the Pacific Northwest recently, or, in, you know, Canada, where they had 121 degrees record, you know, extreme heat is deadly. Our, our best estimate is that over 600 people died from that event. Um, and that's in a place that has a lot of adaptive capacity from extreme heat. You know, if you start talking about tropical regions, um, you could have really devastating events that result in a lot of mortality, particularly in a world that is poor, where there isn't ready access to air conditioning for everyone. You know, again, you can't really separate out climate impacts from adaptive capacity. They're strongly interrelated. Um, but those risks are are real and they are increasing. And, and that's the, this concept of like wet bulb temperature where you literally cannot survive if you've got a thermometer wrapped in a wet sock and swing it around your head and it's registering more than I think 37 degrees, right? Like you you can't live for more than a few hours if, if you're hitting that temperature. We do hit that temperature occasionally, but like much larger areas of the, of the earth will be subject to those kind of that combination of heat and humidity that's just incompatible with life without air conditioning. Yeah. And in most of the parts of the world where that temperature is hit right now, like people have systems in place to try to respond to it. You know, they don't work outside in the middle of the day when it's that hot outside. Right. Um, but as those sort of temperatures start hitting places, in the world that have not historically adapted for those sort of conditions, it's much more likely you could end up with, you know, a heat wave that leads to a huge amount of mortality because, um, you know, farmers don't let all their farm workers off the field because they've never experienced something like this before. They don't know what to expect. They don't know that people might literally drop dead from working in the middle of the day in these sort of conditions. Um, and and so the degree that was sort of a uh, part of the explanation for why so many people died. And at least in Western Canada was because people don't have AC there. It usually doesn't get that hot. I mean, they probably mm -hmm. will get it now, <laughs> but yeah. Um, well, and, and it's not just, you know, daytime conditions. If you are, particularly if you're elderly or if you're in poor health, like being indoors in 90 degree plus heat all night can yeah. be deadly. 
Yeah. Um, you know, we saw a, a heat wave in Europe in 2003 that killed tens of thousands of people, mostly elderly, uh, in large part due to indoor nighttime temperatures in places without air conditioning. So, you know, we can, again, mitigate these impacts by getting more people air conditioning, um, but there's no guarantee we're going to live in a, a prosperous, equal future. Um, and certainly we, there's a big risk that there are a lot of people who remain poor, who don't have access to these adaptive capacities, who do suffer greatly. And ironically, are, are also generally the people who are least responsible for this problem to begin with, because they're not the ones who are emitting tons of CO2. Right. Um, and there's the air conditioning paradox where, you know, unless you can really decarbonize your electricity, you're burning more fossil fuels to keep yourself cool. So we got, we've yeah. got a sea level rise, uh, extreme heat. Uh, give us a few. Yeah. So, you know, one that's a little close to home here in California is, is wildfires. Um, you know, we've seen a dramatic expansion of fire weather um, around the world as temperatures rise. Uh, and that's less due to drought per se, and more due to uh, vegetative moisture. So the drier the vegetation is, uh, particularly in places like uh, California or uh, the Mediterranean or uh, Australia that have sort of a, a monsoonal type climate of long parts of the year where it rains very little or none at all, um, the, drier the, the, the hotter it is, the drier the vegetation gets. And when you have very dry vegetation, you have the potential for very rapidly spreading and catastrophic wildfires um, that are much harder to control than if you have wetter vegetation because they spread so much faster uh, and are much more likely to reach up into the canopies of forests and, and actually kill the trees. Um, you know, here in the Western US, we have forests that are nominally adapted for frequent low-level wildfires. In fact, you know, prior to uh, colonization, there, the native communities here um, you know, used to burn about four to six million acres a year, which is roughly how much burned in, it last year in California, which was you know, the worst fire season wow. in modern history. Um, that was every year. But those were controlled burns. They were low-level burns. They were done you know, when conditions were such that they wouldn't spread out of control. And they were done so frequently that they cleared a lot of the fuel that had built up in these forests. Um, and so, you know, with conditions as dry as they are right now, you know, we still do have a fuel loading problem and we need to do a lot better job taking care of that. But also it's just a lot easier for these fires to spread out of control uh, than it was before. And so, you know, wildfires are really dangerous, both because of, you know, direct, you know, fire risks, uh, but also because the smoke they cause is a huge health hazard. In fact, the smoke from wildfires kills many, many more people than the wildfires themselves do. Um, and so having a smoky season now in California um, you know, having to check the air quality every day before you go outside, uh, you know, it's a big change. Uh, and that's a, a big impact in, in certain parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that came into the news recently um, was the AMOC, um, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, <laughs> that conveyor belt of water um, that makes... Not the Gulf Stream, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> the okay. Gulf Stream is a different thing. So tell us, <laughs> even though the media always confuses that, that's been in the media a lot. Um, it's slowing down. Um, I, I understand from the support that there's a low chance that it will collapse for 2100. But tell us about that. And, um, and it's uh, predecessor, the younger driest event. I just think younger driest sounds cool. But apparently some people say it coincided with the birth of agriculture. I mean, we don't need to go into tons of detail here. But uh, I just think it's a kind yeah. of demonstration. So of as a bit of background, uh, a lot of ocean circulation is driven by salinity. Uh, and the reason is, as surface water evaporates, uh, or as water evaporates off the surface of the ocean, um, it leaves the salt behind. Salt doesn't go up to the, with water vapor into the atmosphere. It doesn't bring salt water, thankfully. Uh, and that means the surface waters of the ocean become saltier, and salt water is more dense. So those denser surface waters fall down, they're replaced by deeper water, and that overturning um, drives ocean circulation and areas where, you know, the water is sort of been traveling for a long time before it gets dense enough, um, you know, can, can drive sort of this ocean conveyor belt. Um, and so there's certain places where you have a lot of overturning, we have very salty water that just reaches that, you know, threshold of density where it, it starts to sink. Um, and one of those main areas of uh, overturning is in the North Atlantic, um, sort of south uh, west, or sorry, southeast of Greenland. Um, and so what happened in the Younger Dryas period, which was a period about 14,000 years ago, uh, 14,500, I don't recall the exact date, uh, there, it was the end of the last ice age, and a huge freshwater lake had formed in the northern part of North America called Lake Agassi. 
as the glaciers melted, it formed this, you know, inland sea essentially of fresh water because the glaciers are all fresh water. And at some point, the final layer of ice sheets between that freshwater sea and the North Atlantic broke. And it was like the biggest dam on earth. Yeah. Uh, and this giant freshwater ocean or freshwater sea poured into the North Atlantic very rapidly. And it turns out that when you put a ton of freshwater into this salty surface water, mm. it becomes less dense. It no longer sinks. And you stop this overturning that drives the ocean circulations. And so what happened in the Younger Dryas is the thermohaline circulation or the AMOC shut down. Uh, the ocean conveyor belt stopped. You stopped transporting uh, sort of warmer water from the tropics up to the North Atlantic. Uh, and you sort of plunged parts of the Northern Hemisphere back into a mini ice age. Um, because, you know, the, the currents that bring warm water up north uh, that make, you know, the climate of the UK not similar to the climate of central Canada um, are themselves, uh, you know, driven in part by this uh, thermohaline circulation or by the AMOC. Um, and so that's not going to happen today. There's not a giant freshwater sea that's going to pour into the North Atlantic all at once. Um, what we're seeing today is at a much smaller scale, but it's a similar process. So freshwater melting off the ice sheets of Greenland is pouring into the North Atlantic at increasing rates. Uh, it's leading to fresher surface waters there. Uh, and we're already seeing this very interesting cold spot to the southeast of Greenland. If, if you look at a map of global warming over the past century, every place on Earth has warmed except for the ocean southeast of Greenland. It is this very distinct warming hole. And the reason for that is because the, the circulation has already slowed down and it's caused regional cooling around there. And so this slowdown might accelerate. Um, it likely will not result in actual cooling. Um, you know, we're not going to plunge the Northern Hemisphere back into a little ice age um, simply because the magnitude of the changes are slow enough that they're going to be more than overcome by global warming. Um, but it'll certainly lead to a lot less warming than we would otherwise have uh, in areas like the UK uh, or the, the Northeast US um, or areas bordering the North Atlantic more broadly. Um, that's actually not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> it's good to have less warming there. Uh, where it is potentially a bad thing, though, is this doesn't just affect regional temperatures. Um, the, the AMOC also has big effects on precipitation patterns globally. Uh, and so you'd expect like more drying around the Mediterranean, potentially more drying in the Southwest US, uh, wetter areas in some tropical bands, you know, you, you have sort of secondary effects of this, particularly on rainfall, uh, that could be much more impactful. Um, you know, this isn't a climate tipping point that ends the world. It's, it's something that, you know, the impacts are still being sort of fully fleshed out and there's some uncertainty around it, um, but it's, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And models generally suggest that it's unlikely to collapse this century. There was sort of a, a paper by a single author uh, that got a lot of media attention couple weeks back suggested might actually collapse the century or, or slow down much faster than previously thought. Other scientists have pushed back on that as with anything in science, you know, it's, it takes a while for a new consensus around these things to emerge. Um, but certainly the best state of our knowledge at the moment is that this process might gradually slow down over the next century um, and is unlikely to completely collapse, um, but certainly could affect rainfall patterns uh, in a meaningful way. So I think, I mean, for the layperson, this is, this is all very complicated and, and hard to wrap <laughs> wrap your head around, right? Um, and certainly there's been a, a number of uh, books that have um, come out recently. I think probably, uh, I forget his first name, I think it's Stephen Coonan's book, Unsettled, uh, came out recently. And it's it's really describing the state of climate science as, as not as settled as, as we're being told that, you know, the media is not accurately representing the findings of climate scientists. And there's a bias towards, again, if it bleeds, it, it leads. Um, I'm not sure if you've, if you've come across Kunin or read his book or, or have a sense of his arguments. Um, it seems like this latest report really has brought things into a much more focus and settled the science more. Um, but yeah, if you do have any thoughts on, on that, I, I think that'd be very, very useful. Yeah. So I think there's some truth that the media can focus on the sensational. Um, I think everyone agrees on that. Um, you know, we particularly see this with some of these high emission scenarios I was talking about earlier. You know, at the same time, I'd argue that folks like Kunin, who, you know, is a physicist, an emeritus physicist, um, people who sort of go outside of their field and have, you know, strong opinions about other people's fields, uh, mm -hmm. also, you know, misrepresents the science pretty significantly. Um, 
you know, Kunin gets a lot of things wrong in his book about sea level rise, about extreme events, about, you know, rates of historical warming, um, about the performance of climate models. Um, you know, I, I think something like the IPCC, which is this massive sort of synthesis of tens of thousands of papers done by the thousand scientists, you know, really provides a good, uh, reasonably conservative, because they're not like going out on a limb with the latest sort of paper with a new finding that hasn't been corroborated by others, but provides a reasonably conservative estimate of, of where we are with the science. And it, and it paints, you know, a pretty grim picture. Um, and I think that it's not the end of the world. Um, and it's not good for us. Um, and it's, you know, a worse problem than some folks like Kuna and Paint. Um, so I'd say that, you know, if you think that climate science, you know, might be more uncertain than we think, you know, read the IPCC report. It, it lays out where the uncertainties are, and there are real uncertainties in a lot of these things, and we should be clear about them. But it also paints where the certainties are and where we've gotten a lot more certain over the last decade. Because where climate science was 30 years ago and where it is today is enormously different. We've made huge leaps and strides in understanding the Earth system. Uh, and these fundamental issues that we were concerned about 30 years ago, we've only gotten more concerned about in the time since. Um, from what I understand, Kunin's largely basing his argument off of the 2013 agreement. Is, is he doing a, a fair amount of, of cherry picking there? Because he says, listen, I'm only just citing the IPCC here. Um, like, there's a very deliberate uh, rhetorical strategy that he's taking. Like, how are his arguments methodologically flawed? Is, is it cherry picking? Is it out of date science? Um, again, it's I don't a know. combination of both. You know, a lot has changed over the last decade, but it's also cherry picking. So I'll give you a good example. Kunin uh, argues that you know, sea levels were rising just as fast in the 1930s as they are today. Um, and there's five major reconstructions of historical sea levels based on tide gauges. Um, one of those five agrees with Kunin's argument. The others don't. The others show that it's, you know, clearly rising faster today than it was in the 1930s. Um, and, you know, if you look back over the last 3,000 years, as we have some paleoclimate reconstructions now, you can clearly see that sea levels now are, you know, far higher than they've been in any time in sort of modern human history. So, you know, I, I think you can always cherry pick uh, the one data set of many data sets that agree with the point you're trying to make. Um, but, you know, it's a little disingenuous if you don't contextualize that within, you know, what else is out there too. Um, and so I think, you know, we need to acknowledge that there are uncertainties in these things, but we also need to acknowledge that what we do know and not sort of go out of the way to, to make a case that downplays uh, the potential severity of climate impacts, just like we need to make sure we don't go out of our way to cherry pick the worst case outcomes and only focus on those. Yeah, so it's a little reminiscent of, uh, of some of the uh, great sort of COVID uh, complacent communicators out there right now in terms of cherry picking and, and uh, you know, avoiding uh, some of the kind of it's not really a consensus because it's such a such a rapidly changing environment that we're under, but but there's certainly feels a bit reminiscent. Um, you can find and, and cherry pick uh, certain figures that uh, can make a compelling argument if you if you frame it well within a book or a podcast. Uh, it, it can have a have a big impact to an audience that's uh, you know frankly not very well educated or informed. So uh, basically, to, to summarize, you're, you're saying the IPCC IPCC is is pretty damn reliable as as this collection of of actual climate scientists, not not physicists that are opining uh, based upon a maybe a bit of a biased review of of the literature. Yeah, and, and I'd say the IPCC is also pretty conservative, right? You know, you're only going to get that many scientists to agree on something if right. there's very strong evidence for it, because you know we scientists are a very disagreeable lot, and yes. no one gets their career-defining paper in Nature by finding the same thing that everyone else has previously found. Right, right, for sure, for sure. So maybe just to kind of wrap it up, um, I, I do find um, like within eco-modernist circles, there's a real, um, you know, disdain for for alarmism and, and catastrophism. Um, like it's it's we we do tend to be quite solutions focused. I think we tend to be um, very pragmatic and you know understand things like you know Václav Smil's work, which illustrates that energy transitions are clumsy and slow. That we never really truly transitioned past older forms of energy. We're still burning wood all over the world. Um, these things, these things take time, and that um, <clears throat> you know things like degrowth, for instance, are not going to deliver a world where we we can adapt and may not even be that impactful in terms of changing emissions. But um, you know, with with reports like this and looking at the you know multiple variables, we went into a few of the ones that concern you most. 
I mean, this is this is very, very concerning stuff. And I think I'm a little concerned with the um, kind of lack of boldness in some of our policy proposals uh, within the eco-modernist world because, again, of that sort of, well, let's, let's not dip into alarmism. I'm not sure if you share that analysis or that outlook. But, um, you know, in terms of, I guess, being accused of, of being overly pragmatic, like this, the scape and the scape and sorry, this shape and scale of uh, scope and scale of, of, you know, what's required of the kind of economic investments we need to make in order to meaningfully reduce our emissions. Um, it's, it's daunting, right? What, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on, I guess, on eco-modernism, on alarmism and on, um, you know, maybe how our politics needs to change, how we need to, to think and, and communicate uh, about our, our policy proposals in, in the face of things like this report, which are illustrating a, a pretty, pretty stark future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's quite possible to be, you know, concerned without being overly alarmist. Um, and I think it's possible to advocate for sort of technologically optimistic policies to help solve these problems without embracing degrowth. You know, I have a piece uh, that I published earlier this week, actually, uh, over at, at Breakthrough um, called, you know, Flattening the Curve of Future Emissions. That's sort of all about all of the progress we actually have already made over the last decade. Um, in sort of making some of these worst case outcomes a lot less likely. Um, you know, global coal use peaked back in 2013 as the now in structural decline. You know, we slowed the rate of emissions growth from 3% a year in the 2000s to 1% a year in the 2010s. Um, you know, clean energy has been made cheap in a lot of cases. And it's, you know, not a panacea, but, you know, we've made huge progress on the cost of renewables, the cost of electric vehicles. You know, there's a huge amount of money being plowed into advanced nuclear these days, and hopefully we'll see some big things there. And to be honest, the solutions that are put forward in the IPCC reports, particularly in Working Group 3, are, are fundamentally eco-modernist. You know, they're envisioning a future that is prosperous, that is equal, that is, you know, better for all of humanity um, with high economic growth, where we simply replace our fossil fuels with clean energy sources. And so I think, you know, we as an eco-modernist community need to embrace positive visions, positive technologically optimistic visions of the futures, like the ones that are in these IPCC integrated assessment models. Um, you know, we can debate about exactly which mix of energy sources is going to be optimal. And, you know, any prediction about future technology costs is probably going to be wrong since, you know, the, the past is littered with the bones of, of failed energy model projections. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's definitely possible to envision a world that is rich, that is prosperous, that is equal, that is high tech, and where we limit warming to below two degrees. We just need better policies and better technologies to get there. Right. You were mentioning there is a like an SSP pathway that is more sort of deep growth in focus. I mean, just I guess in closing, um, give us um, your sense of what a what a deep growth model would would look like in terms of both mitigation and adaptation. So all of the SSPs are very strongly growth focused. You know, uh, I think even in the sort of Trump world, uh, SSP three that's that's the poorest of all of them. Uh, global GDP uh, still, you know, roughly triples by twenty one hundred and increases, you know, five to eightfold in some of the like sustainability focused SSP one scenarios or the the SSP five scenario. Um, so these are all very prosperous worlds. You know, the, the per capita income or per capita GDP globally uh, in 2100 is like $120,000. You know, there aren't really any degrowth worlds in the current energy system modeling literature. There have been a few papers published recently um, by some folks arguing that there should be. And we'll see if, you know, any energy system modelers actually want to deal with that for the next time around. Uh, but at least currently, it's it's sort of prosperous features all around uh, in terms of the the underlying models in this IPCC report. What's your sort of, if you had to kind of spitball on this or your sort of main critiques, um, and we can't do a whole podcast on degrowth here, but maybe just in a minute or two, like what, what are the fundamental problems of thinking we can degrow our way out of, out of climate mitigation and adaptation? I mean, the fundamental problem is that we've already absolutely decoupled emissions in the rich world and they're decreasing. You know, it's it's the poor countries reaching the standard of living that we take for granted um, and, you know, lifting billions of people out of abject poverty that's going to be the driver of future emissions. Um, and yes, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic with arguments that rich people don't necessarily need to consume as much, you know, and I think people should be free to make choices to consume less. And in some cases, governments might even want to restrict harmful activities or put a higher price on them that lead to less consumption. Um, but at the end of the day, what matters is is not 
the rich world. It's, it's the folks who are, you know, want to be and should be, to be honest, uh, as wealthy as prosperous and have the same opportunities that we have today. And I don't think degrowth is a good solution to that problem. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think you're going to be able to convince an in India or for that matter, a sub-Saharan Africa to forgo the level of you know, comfort and quality of life that we take for granted. And I don't think you're going to convince the rich countries to make enormous transfers of wealth to the poor countries that would allow for some sort of equitable middle. You know, I, I think it's, it's similar to the argument that we need to overthrow capitalism to solve climate change, which, you know, maybe if someone were the dictator of the world and could create a perfect system that could work out, but it's not the world we live in. And sort of arguing for these utopian or potentially dystopian solutions, you know, in practice just ends up kind of being an excuse for doing nothing. Okay, Zeke, this has been fascinating, a real masterclass. Um, I, I'm coming away from this with a, a much better sense of the, the state of the climate and, uh, and a sense of what this report means for that. So it's been a very busy week for you, as you were saying. Uh, you're holding on to your voice quite well. It's not as hoarse as I expected, but uh, thanks, for, thanks for spending some time with, uh, with me and my listeners. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here. We'll catch up again soon, I hope. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.